Good morning. I invite you to turn to Luke chapter 2. And momentarily, I'll read verses 22 through 38. As we walk through the Christmas narratives in in Matthew chapters 1 and 2 and Luke chapters 1 and 2, there's there's a recurrence of worship. Of course, we're familiar with the wise men coming from the east to worship the Lord and present their gifts before Him. That, that actually didn't take place for, for many months after Jesus was born, but we typically associate that with our Lord's arrival. And in, in, in Luke chapters 1 and 2, it's just bursting with praise. In Luke chapter 1, verse 46, Mary praises the Lord, her soul magnifies the Lord. And, and, and Zechariah, after John, his son John was born, Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit in chapter 1, verse 67, and he prophesied and he said, blessed be the Lord God of Israel. And into chapter 2, when the, the, angels came, the angel came and announced to the shepherds that the Savior Christ the Lord had been born, Right after that, in chapter 2, verse 14, a heavenly host showed up praising God. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom He is pleased. And so, over and over and over again, people and angels are responding to the revelation of God's glory with worship and praise glorifying the Lord. In fact, we can say that if the revelation of the Lord's glory in and through the Lord Jesus Christ doesn't doesn't lead you to worship, doesn't lead you to glorify God and to glorify His Son, then you're, you're missing the point. Because the point is to glorify the Lord. True worship, however, cannot be reduced to those special moments of praise and adoration, but true worship also involves a lifestyle of reverence and obedience and faithfulness to the Lord. And with this in mind, as we come to today's passage, we see that Joseph and Mary, Simeon, and Anna are model disciples, model worshipers, their whole life being devoted to the Lord. In just a moment, I'll read verses 22 to 38, but notice that this passage bears several marks of true worship. Obeying God's instructions, praising God, declaring truth, marveling at what is being declared, pronouncing a blessing on the worshipers, speaking forth a word of prophecy, giving thanks to God, speaking about God, and waiting for God to bring consolation and redemption to His people. Although I wouldn't call what is happening in these verses as a, as a worship service per se, I would call it an impromptu gathering of worshipers who are caught up in the wonderful things that God is doing. 
So let me read beginning in verse 22 of chapter 2. And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought Him up to Jerusalem to present Him to the Lord as it is written in the law of the Lord. Every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day, and coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of Him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. This is God's Word. It is for our good. Let's pray. Father, uh, we thank You for Your holy Word. And Father, we pray that You would instruct us, transform us, Reveal Your glory to us and bring us into the same obedience and the same worship and the same expectancy that these dear brothers and sisters experienced in Luke chapter 2. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we'll kind of walk through the passage in, in three, three steps. Uh, first, Joseph and Mary obey the requirements of God's law in verses 22 to 24. There are two specific requirements that are in view here. One requirement pertains to the dedication of the firstborn, the firstborn son. Jesus is called Mary's firstborn son in Luke 2.7, and Joseph and Mary understood that they were required to present the firstborn son to the Lord because, as verse 23 says, it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. The instruction about the dedication of the firstborn son is found in Exodus chapter 13, which begins, The Lord said to Moses, Consecrate to me all the firstborn, Whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and beast, is mine. 
This instruction was intended to be a reminder of the Lord's gracious deliverance of Israel out of Egypt. God rescued Israel, but imposed judgment upon the Egyptians. And at one of the climactic moments of judgment upon the Egyptians, the Lord struck down every firstborn son and firstborn animal throughout the land of Egypt. But the Lord spared His own people. And He wanted to remember the solemnity of their redemption. This, this, this is serious business. Wrath has just been poured out upon the Egyptians. And frankly, Israel deserved that same wrath. But the Lord was merciful. And He, and he, and he wanted them to, to bear these things in mind. And He wanted them to understand that the firstborn belongs to the Lord in a special way. In our sinfulness, we are tempted to claim the first for ourselves. The first fruits of the harvest. The firstborn of the flocks and herds. The firstborn of our sons. The temptation is to take these signs of blessing, strength, and promise and to make them serve us and call attention to our worth and advance our agenda. But they don't belong to us. And they can be lost in an instant as the Egyptians found out so the Lord teaches us to offer the firsts to Him with warm-hearted gratitude. <clears throat> now as a matter of fact, everything belongs to the Lord. That's clear. But, he, but the Lord teaches us to get the right mindset about reality by specifically devoting the firsts to Him. If your own mindset is to devote the second things or the less important things, or the leftovers to God, but to hold tightly to the first things and the best things for yourself, then you have a problem. And you have something to learn today. Because you are treating yourself very well. But you are treating God as an afterthought. And so learn from Joseph and Mary. They held the absolute greatest gift in their arms. And yet they knew that Jesus did not belong to them. Jesus belonged to the Father. And Joseph and Mary would walk in this truth. Now, if you want to turn to Exodus chapter 13, I want you to see the biblical footing beneath this act of devotion. I'm going to read Exodus chapter 13, verses 11-16. through 16. If we're going to understand the New Testament, it's very important to understand the Old Testament. Scripture says in Exodus chapter 13, beginning in verse 11, when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites as He swore to you and your fathers and shall give it to you, you shall set apart to the Lord all that first opens the womb. All the firstborn of your animals that are males shall be the Lord's. Every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb, or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. Every firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. 
And when in time to come your son asks you, what does this mean? You shall say to him, by a strong hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals. Therefore, I sacrifice to the Lord all the males that first opened the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. The, the dedication of the firstborn son did not mean that the son was killed, but that the firstborn son was redeemed by the sacrifice of an animal. I was, when I was thinking about this, I was thinking about how the forerunner of this firstborn dedication was Abraham's offering of Isaac on the holy mountain. The, the ram was sacrificed in Isaac's place, but the whole experience testified to the fact that Abraham understood that Isaac belonged not to him, but to the Lord. And so it is that the firstborn son is consecrated to God in a special way, even while the firstborn son continues to live with his parents and grow up under their care. The dedication of the baby Jesus coincided with another requirement of the law, namely the purification of the mother after childbirth. Note the reference to purification at the beginning of verse 22. I'm back in Luke, Luke 2 now. At the beginning of verse 22, there's a reference to purification. And then this theme is picked up again in verse 24 where it says, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons which refers to a passage in Leviticus chapter 12. And go to, go to Leviticus 12. I normally don't ask you to flip around to different Scriptures, but it's worth going over to Leviticus 12 because that provides the background instruction to this aspect of Joseph and Mary's obedience. Leviticus chapter 12 begins... The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the people of Israel saying, If a woman conceives and bears a male child, then she shall be unclean seven days. As at the time of her menstruation, she shall be unclean. And on the eighth day, the flesh of his foreskin shall be circumcised. Let me, let me pause there for just a moment because in Luke chapter 2, verse 21, we are told that Jesus was circumcised on the eighth day in accordance with the instructions of the law. Leviticus 12 continues, Then she shall continue for 33 days in the blood of her purifying. She shall not touch anything holy, nor come into the sanctuary until the days of her purifying are completed. But if she bears a female child, then she shall be unclean two weeks as in her menstruation, and she shall continue in the blood of her purifying for 66 days. And when the days of her purifying are completed, whether for a son or for a daughter, she shall bring to the priest at the entrance of the tent of meeting a lamb a year old for a burnt offering and a pigeon or a turtle dove for a sin offering, and he shall offer it before the Lord and make atonement for her. Then she shall be clean from the flow of her blood. This is the law for her who bears a child, either male or female. And if she cannot afford a lamb, then she shall take two turtle doves or two pigeons. There's the, what's referred to in 
Luke 2, she shall take two turtle doves or two pigeons, one for a burnt offering and the other for a sin offering, and the priest shall make atonement for her, and she shall be clean. So when Luke 2.24 refers to the Leviticus 12 passage about a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons, it implies that Mary could not afford a lamb for the burnt offering. And this implies that Joseph and Mary had limited financial resources. They were not wealthy. But far more important than their economic standing is their obedience. Verses 22 to 24 emphasize that they acted according to the law of Moses. Verse 22. Verse 27 repeats this emphasis. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for Him according to the custom of the law. And later, verse 39 repeats the same emphasis. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord. One of the things that Matthew chapters 1 and 2 and Luke chapters 1 and 2 make clear is that Joseph and Mary were faithful, righteous, teachable, and obedient people. And on a very basic level, we can be encouraged and challenged by their commendable example. But it is even more important for us to understand that Jesus grew up in a faithful, God-fearing family. Paul taught us in Galatians chapter 4, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Mark those words that Jesus was born under the law. And while it is true that an infant is not held responsible for the unfaithfulness of his parents, I would like to suggest that it would have been unfitting for Jesus to be out of compliance with God's law on account of his parents. That would have been unfitting. If Jesus had not been circumcised on the eighth day in accordance with the law, that would not have been fitting. If Jesus, the firstborn Son, had not been consecrated to the Father in accordance with the law, that would not have been fitting. The truth is, it is fitting that Israel's Messiah, the heir to the throne of His father David, was not only born under the law, but was brought into conformity with the law during his days of infancy. Furthermore, on a very practical level, when we read Luke 2.40, Luke 2.40, and the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. And when we, we read Luke 2.52, and Jesus increased in wisdom, and in stature, and in favor with God and man, we understand that Jesus grew in wisdom, at least in part, through the ordinary means of being influenced and shaped by godly parents who trusted the Lord and walked in obedience to His commands. Jesus, the boy Jesus, grew up in a godly home. Now, as we transition into verses 25 to 35, one other thing is worth pointing out. The remarkable worship that is about to unfold with Simeon and then with Anna cannot be separated from the fact 
that Jesus, the infant Jesus, was actually in the temple on that particular day because Joseph and Mary were obeying God's law. They were in the temple with Jesus on the 40th day after Mary had given birth to Jesus because that is exactly what God's law commanded them to do. And on this path of ordinary obedience, there were measures of joy and praise and prophecy and thanksgiving that were about to burst forth. But they would not have burst forth when they did without dad and mom's ordinary obedience that led up to it. Never disparage the path of ordinary obedience and expect unexpected blessings to land on you and on others as you walk the path of ordinary, everyday obedience to the Lord. This brings us to verses 25-35 to where Simeon celebrates and speaks about the Messiah. Joseph and Mary's dedication of Jesus and their sacrificial offering in the temple set the stage for God fulfilling His promise to Simeon. We might assume that Simeon was a priest, but our passage never identifies him as a priest. What we, what we do know is that Simeon, like Joseph and Mary, was a righteous man with great expectation. Verse 25 tells us that Simeon was righteous and devout. Further, his devotion to God expressed itself in waiting upon God. Specifically, Simeon was waiting for the consolation of Israel. God had established Israel to flourish and shine brightly for Him and to be a light to all the nations on the earth. But Israel had squandered her riches and had suffered God's judgment. Israel had forfeited her former glory, had experienced exile, had lost her national independence. But there were promises. There were promises that one day God would take away her reproach and make her glorious again. He would restore David's throne. He would make a new covenant with the children of Abraham. And Simeon was the sort of man who took God at His Word. Therefore, Simeon was waiting for the promise to be fulfilled. And Simeon wasn't the only one who was waiting. If you look ahead to verse 38, you will notice at the end of the verse that the prophetess Anna was speaking to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. So there was a community of worshipers in Jerusalem, Simeon and Anna among them, who were waiting in expectation for the redemption and restoration of Jerusalem for the consolation and comfort of Israel. We sing about this at Christmas time. O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appear. And by God's gracious orchestration, Simeon happened to be alive at that climactic moment when God's Son appeared. Moreover, in Simeon's case, he had more than the general Old Testament promises concerning the coming of the Messiah. Those general Old Testament promises were the foundation of his expectation, but additional information had been revealed to Simeon. 
notice that Simeon was a man acquainted with the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Verse 25 tells us that the Holy Spirit was upon him. And the very next verse tells us, verse 26, tells us that the Holy Spirit had revealed to Simeon that before he left this life, he would set his eyes on the Lord's Christ. And so God, had, so, so God had given Simeon a very specific and personalized promise that he would get to see the King, the Anointed One, the Messiah, before he died. And this promise was fulfilled on the 40th day after Messiah's birth as a result of the fact that Joseph and Mary were walking the path of ordinary obedience and doing what God's law required. As we come to verse 27, think about this. By faith, Joseph and Mary were in the temple on that day and the infant Jesus was with them. And at the same time, Simeon, living in expectation, in expectant faith, and walking in step with the Holy Spirit, Simeon came in the Spirit into the temple. The Holy Family is there. Simeon is there. And somehow it becomes evident to Simeon that this infant boy is the Messiah. Verse 27 continues, And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for Him according to the custom of the law, He took Him up in His arms and blessed God and said... And then Simeon bursts forth in words of praise, thanksgiving, and proclamation. I want to pause on on this for a moment. You can learn some important things about people by considering what items are on their bucket list. (laughs) If they have one. The list of things that they would like to do or experience before they die. Now, I'm neither for nor against the concept of a bucket list, but it is sufficient to point out that the overflow of a sinful heart would be bucket list vanity. And this means that I would also grant that if a believer had a, had a, a bucket list, what would flow out of their heart would be bucket list sanity, humility, and not taking our wish lists too seriously. I have no reason to think that Simeon had a bucket list, but the reason I'm bringing this up is I want you to see his heart. I want you to see his heart here. While the people of this world are wasting their lives on earthly treasures and trivial pursuits, Simeon's heart was laser-focused on one thing, the promise and plan of God. He was totally absorbed in that. And when, and when Simeon took God's promised Messiah into his arms, as far as Simeon was concerned, his earthly life had reached its appointed goal and now he could exit stage right. Where is your heart? Would you consider yourself blessed beyond measure If only you could get a glimpse of God's glory shining forth in the face of His dear Son. With the baby in his arms, Simeon blessed God, verse 28, and he prayed, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation. God had made a promise. God kept His promise. 
according to your word. And now Simeon was good to lay aside his earthly tent. Simeon had not yet seen the Lord's redemption in its full expression. But notice what he says. He says, My eyes have seen your salvation. Just think about that. He, he hadn't seen the redemption of Jerusalem, but he had seen the Redeemer. He hadn't seen the consolation of Israel, but he had seen the One who would bring the consolation. He hadn't seen the final victory won, but he had seen the Messiah who would bring the victory. And as far as Simeon was concerned, the very fact that God had kept His promise in sending the Messiah was a guarantee that the Messiah would succeed at bringing God's salvation to this fallen world. Therefore, seeing the Messiah was for Simeon as good as seeing the salvation that the Messiah would bring. God's salvation at its root is not a certain state of affairs, but it's bound up with a person. Do you want to see God's salvation? Then set your eyes upon Jesus. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. As Simeon continues to pray, he understands that the scope of salvation that the Messiah brings is global. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. Yes, Israelites who turn to the Messiah would discover the Lord's redemption, consolation, and glorification. But Simeon understood that the blessings of the Messiah would overflow to the whole world. One thinks of another verse in the hymn from which I quoted earlier, O come, desire of nations, bind all peoples in one heart and mind. Bid envy, strife, and quarrels cease. Fill all the world with heaven's peace. Perhaps Simeon was thinking of Isaiah 49 where it says concerning the Messiah, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. The Messiah is a light for revelation to the Gentiles. And as the good news of great joy is proclaimed among them, the Gentiles who turn to Jesus will be brought into the redemption, consolation, and glorification of God's people. As Joseph and Mary heard these breathtaking declarations about their son, they could only marvel at what was said about him. And then after pronouncing a benediction upon these dear parents, Simeon turned to Mary and uttered some very sobering words to her in verses 34 and 35. Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed and a sword will pierce through your own soul also so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Jesus is the Messiah who is appointed to some heavy-duty stuff. The point of verse 34 is that God has appointed His Messiah to be the cause of division. 
and the object of opposition. The Messiah's ministry will be intensely sobering in its impact. Some will stumble and fall to their utter ruin. Others will be plucked from the fire and rise to new life. Luke, Luke, uh, I'm sorry, Mary prayed in Luke chapter 1, God scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and the rich He has sent away empty. But on the other hand, she prayed that God has exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things. Fall and rise. In Jesus' teaching in Luke chapter 6, the poor ones and hungry ones and sorrowful ones and persecuted ones who trust in Jesus are the ones who are blessed by God. Whereas the rich folks and the indulgent folks and the silly folks and the popular folks who love their popular, silly, self-indulgent, lavish lifestyle but who don't love the Lord are the ones under God's judgment. And in Luke chapter 12, Jesus said, do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on in one house there will be five divided. Three against two and two against three. The, the fall and rise of many. At the same time, the Messiah will experience suffering. This child is appointed for a sign that is opposed. He will be opposed, despised, slandered, rejected, and crucified. He will be pierced with nails in His hands and feet and with a sword in His side. And verse 35 tells us that Mary will suffer also. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also. Being the mother of the Messiah, the mother, who is a, the mother of the Messiah who is appointed for the fallen rising of many, being the mother of this kind of Messiah is no easy task. With a mother's affection and love, her soul will be torn apart on account of her firstborn son. So the Messiah is appointed for some heavy-duty stuff. The significance of this appointment is highlighted at the end of verse 35. So that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. The word that is translated thoughts is typically used to refer to hostile thoughts. And so the idea is that just as light exposes what lurks in the darkness, so the Messiah will expose the secrets of sinners' hearts. Um, there, will be, there's, there are many people who they don't have a heart for the Lord. They're doing their own thing even if they do it under the guise of religion. And the Messiah shows up and He exposes the thoughts of the heart. I, I would ask you, where do you stand in relation to Jesus? I didn't ask whether or not you have a vague belief in a generic deity. I didn't ask you if you believe in some moral sensibilities that should govern life. I am asking you, where do you stand in relationship to Jesus? Have you entrusted your heart and your life to him. When Jesus tells Pilate in John chapter 18, everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice, he is teaching us that a person's response to Jesus reveals what that person is all about. Your response to Jesus doesn't tell me anything about Jesus. 
I know who Jesus is. Your response to Jesus tells me about you. If you humbly and lovingly listen to His voice, then according to Jesus, you are of the truth. But if you don't listen to Him, then according to Jesus, you are not of the truth. Your attitude towards Jesus reveals where you're at in relationship to God. I'm sure that Mary understood very little of this in the actual moment that Simeon was prophesying to her. At the moment, she probably only had a very vague sense that her son's life and ministry was going to be heavy, full of opportunity and blessing, but also full of heartache and opposition, and somehow she herself would share in his suffering. Finally, and we're almost done. I know it's cold in here. As we come to verses 36 to 38, Anna celebrates and speaks about the Messiah's arrival. What had begun as a journey of ordinary obedience to the temple turned into a remarkable moment of praise and proclamation when Simeon showed up and now Anna shows up and gets in on the action. Like Joseph and Mary and like Simeon, Anna was a model of true devotion. Ever since she had become a widow, she spent her entire life in the temple. Can you imagine? Verse 37, she did not depart from the temple worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. She also must have had the promised restoration of Israel and the promised Messiah upon her mind. For when she stumbled upon the little worship gathering that was taking place between Joseph and Mary and, and Simeon with Jesus, the baby Jesus, occupying center stage, she understood what was happening. She probably knew Simeon. And she must have heard what, what he was saying. And she must have seen the baby in his arms. And she believed. Because the context indicates that when she heard and saw what was happening, she gave thanks. She gave thanks to God because she saw the Messiah in their midst. In Luke chapter 1, verses 41 to 45, John the baptizer, still in the womb, and her mother Elizabeth were filled with joy because of the knowledge that the Lord's arrival was drawing near. In Luke chapter 1, verses 46 to, 40, 46 to 55, Mary magnified the Lord because of the wonderful mercy that the Lord had shown her in choosing her to be the mother of the King. In Luke chapter 1, verses 67 to 79, Zechariah praised the Lord God of Israel because he had raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. In Luke chapter 2, verses 10 to 12, the angel declared the good news of great joy to the shepherds out in the field. In Luke chapter 2, verse 17, the shepherds shared what they had heard from the angel and they made known that saying about Jesus to other people. And then in Luke chapter 2, verse 20, the shepherds were glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen. And in Luke 2, 28-35, Simeon celebrated the good news of God's salvation that had come to him in the form of an infant Messiah. And then Simeon was proclaiming the truth about the Messiah. Do you see a pattern? Do you see a theme? In Luke chapters 1 and 2, the heavens 
are opened. Angels bear heaven's message to earth. The Holy Spirit comes upon the people of His choosing. The Lord's coming is first announced, and then He arrives, Mary's firstborn Son, the Savior who is Christ the Lord, born in Bethlehem, wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying in a manger, the One who is a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to Your people Israel. And as these glories stream from heaven afar and are revealed to the sons and daughters on earth, what happens? Worship is what happens. The people who have eyes to see these glories respond to this glorious revelation by praising God, by proclaiming the good news, and by pronouncing words of blessing on others who share in what God is doing. And so, now as we come to the end of today's passage, it's Anna's turn to get in on the worship. As she enters the wonderful scene in the temple, she began to give thanks to God. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. Psalm 118, verse 1, And nowhere is His steadfast love more apparent than in the gift of His Son. And then after looking upward to God with a grateful heart, she turns to others and she speaks to them about the Lord. Shouldn't this also be the pattern of our own lives? We see the glory of the Messiah. We give thanks for the salvation that, we, that He brings. And we speak of Him to others. Seeing and celebrating and speaking about the Messiah and serving Him with a lifestyle of reverent obedience. That's the reason that you have life and breath and strength. Let everyone who has breath praise the Lord. Let's pray. Father, I pray that by Your Holy Spirit You would bring us into this, this pattern of seeing and savoring and declaring the wonderful glories that You have revealed through our Lord Jesus Christ. In His name we pray. Amen.